The idea that someone would be put to death for committing adultery strikes our modern sensibilities as extremely harsh, cruel, and unjust. But it was written by Moses. It was given by God in the Old Testament as part of the law. And specifically, in Leviticus chapter 20, it says that if a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Now, interestingly, the Pharisees who came to Jesus with the woman somehow were missing the man who was the other person in that act. Now, the thing is, even though this is in the Old Testament, we don't know for certain how um, often, how regularly it was enforced in the history of Israel. Oftentimes, societies have laws on the books that are not strictly enforced. Maybe you're not aware of this, but as recently as 2016, 21 states in our nation had laws that, have laws that criminalize adultery. So they're on the books. Now, you probably almost never heard of someone being put in jail for committing adultery, so they're not, they're not enforced very much at all. But it, the inclusion of adultery in a nation's criminal code is a judgment that it's not merely a personal fault. And it's not merely a betrayal of trust and injury to the innocent spouse, but it's also something that threatens society as a whole. And that's because marriage, faithful marriages that endure, are necessary for a healthy society. Those marriages make the spouses themselves better people. And they also provide the ideal context for conceiving and raising children. And so infidelity undermines all of that and threatens the social order. Adultery is condemned not only in the Torah, but also in the prophetic writings and the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. It is mentioned by prophets sometimes, the widespread practice of adultery, as a reason why God will chastise the nation. In the New Testament, sexual immorality of various kinds is described as preventing people from entering into heaven. And Jesus himself warns of the destructive consequences of lust. So what Jesus does for this woman shouldn't be understood as him dismissing the seriousness of adultery. But it gives us a lot to reflect on regarding the relationship between justice and mercy. By justice, I mean the preserving of the social order by giving each one his due, what he or she deserves. And by mercy, I mean love's response to evil. So let's look at the situation again. Are the Pharisees just in bringing this accusation? Well, it certainly wasn't their intention to uphold the moral law or to preserve the social order. They are using the woman as a tool to try to trap Jesus because the Romans had prohibited the Jewish authorities from using capital punishment. So they're trying to get Jesus to give an answer that no matter what answer he gives, he will, be, he will, he'll, he will fall into this trap. Uh, second, the Pharisees are not the right people to be carrying out this justice because they themselves are guilty of worse sins. So what was Jesus writing in the ground? He, two, two times in this interaction, he's writing in the ground with his finger. Uh, 
the church fathers believed that Jesus was writing the sins of the woman's accusers. And that's why they left. Now we don't know, we don't know if that's right, but I think it's, a, I think it's probably right. But in any event, we know that Jesus on many occasions publicly, uh, publicly enumerated the sins of the Pharisees, which were worse than that of the woman. So when he says to them, let the one who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her, they are convicted in their consciences and they have to leave. It is not just to condemn others when one is guilty of the same or worse offenses. It's interesting how we often want justice for others, but mercy for myself. And the injustice of that is obvious. Justice and mercy meet in the heart of God, who desires the good for us individually and collectively. Now for us, they seem to be intention. It can be confusing to apply them, but for God, who's infinitely good and wise, they go together perfectly, and his decisions are always very correct and clear. Now, parents, you know the, the difficulty of, of having justice and mercy being intention sometimes. Um, you have rules and consequences for your children. Otherwise, they will not acquire the traits of character that they will need to flourish in life. If you are too permissive, they will be spoiled and irresponsible, and they will cause much difficulty for many people for many years. If you are too strict, they will also not internalize virtue. They may comply, but they will be no more than Pavlov's dog responding to reward and punishment. In fact, they also will probably be, grow resentful of the rules and of you, the rule givers. Now, sometimes you've set out the rule and a consequence and your child has violated the rule, but you decide in that particular situation it is best not to enforce the consequence for the good of that child and given other things that you know about them and the situation. And um, now sometimes you don't enforce the consequences just because you're tired and worn out and you don't want to fight. But you also know if you never carry out the consequences, then your children will be emboldened to grow in vice. Jesus knew the woman better than she knew herself. Perhaps he knew something about her situation, her past, that mitigated the guilt of the sin of adultery. Perhaps he knew that, given that this has been made public, she would suffer greatly from shame and ostracization and in other ways, and that suffering was sufficient for her sin. He knew that what she needed in that moment was a healing balm, a pardon. Neither do I condemn you, coupled with a straightforward admonition, go and sin no more. So how do you respond when you receive mercy? It should change us. Whenever we deserve some terrible punishment, but instead are given a second chance, what will we do with that second chance? One of my favorite stories of all time is from uh, Victor Hugo's novel, Le Mis, and you may have seen the story told in other formats, um, but it's the encounter between the protagonist, Jean Valjean, and a bishop. And Valjean, as a young man, is having to look after his younger siblings, and they're, very, they're destitute, so he steals some bread, he gets caught, he's sentenced to years in prison, which is clearly disproportionate punishment for what he did. 
And then he tries to get away, and then he gets more years, and finally he's released, and he's a hardened man. His heart has grown hard. And he's sent out with these papers that he has to show wherever he goes that indicate he's a convict, and so he tries to stay in inns, and they won't let him stay in the inns. He sleeps on the street. Finally, he goes to a bishop, and the bishop lets him in and gives him a good meal and gives him a place to sleep. But in the middle of the night, he wakes up, and he's just so mad still at all that he suffered. And, and he saw that there was silverware used for the dinner, so he went and stole the silverware, and he escaped in the middle of the night. The bishop in the morning, when he woke up, realized that the silverware had been stolen, but he didn't, didn't get angry and didn't report him. He figured that Valjean needed it more than he did. But a little while later, there's a knock at the door, and there's Valjean surrounded by five soldiers. They had searched him. They found the silverware. They assumed that it was stolen, and they were, they were uh, going to inquire of the bishop. And as soon as they started speaking, the bishop interrupts them, and he says, Valjean, you forgot to take the silver candlesticks that I wanted to give you as well. So let me give those to you. And so... The soldiers leave away, uh, leave a little humiliated, and, and the, Valjean is standing there just with the bishop, and he's surprised, he's shocked, because he's never experienced mercy like that. And uh, he, says, he says to the bishop, is it true that I am free, that I may go? The bishop says to him, yes, depart in peace, but don't go through the back door. The front door is open to you day and night. One more thing. You must use the money to become an honest man. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil but to good. I have bought your soul for you. I withdrew it from black thoughts and the spirit of hate and gave it to God. In Christ, each one of us has been shown extravagant mercy. We deserved a terrible punishment. But instead, we received pardon and an admonition to go and sin no more. We were purchased not by silverware, but by his precious blood. May we appreciate that mercy, that second chance. May we be honest men and women who by his grace go and sin no more.